Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. I have Andrew Peterson here with me, friend of mine. Most of you are familiar with Andrew with his uh, with his music from "Behold the Lamb" Christmas tour, which is going to start here in a matter of uh, of weeks. To all his various uh, albums, many of you read through the Wing Feather uh, series of, of books that he's written. Some of you with your with your kids, uh, and some of you just on your own. And uh, so, you're most of you are very familiar with Andrew Peterson. And one of the things I wanted to talk about is there was a study done a couple years ago about Facebook and how Facebook tends to make people depressed. And the more that they look at Facebook, the more depressed they get. And the reason for that, they found out, is because people are looking at these kind of, um, the pictures that people put up or the, the posts that people put up are typically not about their struggles and their failures and, and those sorts of things is typically the, the sort of thing that they want people to know. And so when people look at Facebook, they tend to compare themselves to other people and think, man, my life is uh, terrible. One of the things that I really appreciate about Andrew's music, among a thousand and one other things, several years ago when I was going through a really hard time in my life, one of the places that I would always go uh, I lived in Louisville at the time, and I would drive down outside of Bardstown, Kentucky. There's a monastery called Gethsemane Abbey, where a writer named Thomas Merton used to be. And I would go there uh, all the time because it was the only place I could go where I could walk in the woods in complete quiet and just pray. And then I could go into a building that was totally silent and just pray. And so uh, shortly after that, Andrew wrote a song called The Silence of God that actually talks about that, that place. And there's a line in it that says, the aching remains, but the breaking does not. And I think that is a, a really important truth. So Andrew, when you're thinking about writing about difficult times, about, about darkness, and you've had a lot of songs talking about that, why do you think we don't talk more about that kind of vulnerability in our churches and our worship and, and, and just in our lives together? I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay. I can tell you why I do it. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in the church. My dad um, just retired after 50 years of preaching uh, this past December. And um, 
I was talking to my mom. I hit my midlife crisis, which meant counseling and crying about all this stuff that had happened when I was a kid that I'd forgotten about. And, uh, and one of the things that I said to my mom was, why didn't dad ever preach about his own sin from the pulpit? Why didn't he ever bring his own story to the pulpit? And uh, fully expecting my mom to say, oh, he did, you know, to correct my memory. And she stopped and she said, you're right. Your daddy's never done that. Um, I love my dad dearly, but there's almost like a generational tendency to, for the pastor, for the people up front to have it together. Mm -hmm. And as a little boy, um, I knew my dad. He was a great man, but he was also very broken, you know, had his own problems. And I saw a disparity between the person I saw in the pulpit and the person who watched Magnum P.I. with us at home. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I think from, a, from an early age, I, f I was afraid of creating a persona. I've always been afraid of that. And so I, uh, I, even though when you're writing songs, you're still very much choosing what you're allowing, for, allowing people to see. Sure. But there's also a principle at work that the, the, Frederick Buechner is one of my favorite writers. He Me said too. one of his, the things that he said was the story of one of us is in some measure is the story of us all. So they're, they're, uh, rather than hiding the darker, more embarrassing parts of my story, to try to tell, steward that story well and share it with people, I suspected that that would be one of the surest ways to minister to other lonely, broken people. Most of the people in this room are in places of leadership, either in business or ministry or art or, or any, any number of things. And I think probably everybody in this room has either hit a wall or maybe is about to hit a wall. Uh, where you, you really do feel like you're going through that, that sort of Gethsemane mm -hmm. uh, time of, of darkness. Are there things you've learned about kind of what to do uh, as wow. you're going through that moment? Or, or maybe even there's some people in this room probably who have someone in their life who's going through this right now. And mm -hmm. what, what have you learned about how to help them? Well, I think there's a tendency to lean away from church. You guys have probably experienced the, the noticed, like whenever uh, you hear for, through the grapevine that somebody's marriage is struggling, then you go, oh yeah, I haven't seen them at church in a while. You know, there's a, that's one thing is that I, I have to sometimes force myself, nope, I got to show up. I have to go and be around this community of believers, even though I don't feel, I don't feel like doing it. And also counseling is huge. Like sitting down with my wife and telling a third person, about what's going on. Um, the very first time I went to counseling ever, I remember telling the counselor, Al, um, this whole story about, because I had worked out my entire, you know, every struggle I'd ever had and the reasons why I had it all. And my friend Al said, uh, you know, I've never met anyone who could correctly interpret their own childhood. And, uh, and I think that we need other people their wisdom to speak into our lives. And, uh, and that was one thing that I, you know, it was humbling the very first time I went and spoke to another person about what was really going on. But it was tremendously helpful. Being humbled is never a bad thing, I don't, I don't think. So that's, that's a part of it. Yeah, I'm going to stop there. Well, he told me, he said, if, I, if I'm going too long, just clear your throat, and I'll know to stop. And so this morning, I've got this kind of tickling in my throat, and I said, I'm afraid I'm going to get up there and clear my throat, and he's just say, okay, I'm done. Uh, so, <laughs> so I heard someone clear his throat, and then yeah. Andrew's done. Uh, one, of these, one of the songs that I actually recommend to a lot of people, and I actually recommend it in premarital counseling, 
is Dancing Through the Minefields. Because <laughs> this song, if you're not familiar with the song, it's a song to his wife uh, about the fact you were young, what, 19 uh, when you married. And, Got engaged, yeah. Yeah, and talk, talking, about, <clears throat> talking about marriage in the most realistic way I think I've heard in a song. Because there are kind of two kinds of songs about marriage. There's either sort of another day in paradise sort of songs uh, to, to a wife, or there is, you know, all my exes live in Texas sort of a thing. And so what, what he does in this song, what you do in the song, is to talk about the joy and also the difficulty. I mean, that, that image of dancing through minefields is exactly, exactly right. I mean, most people in this room are either married or they're sort of ministering to and supporting people in, in marriage. What have you learned there? I mean, I wish I just brought my guitar because it'd be easier yeah, to just play that would the song. Be great. Yeah. The, uh, I think, um, okay, I can sum it up this way. I used to think that good marriages were the marriages where no one ever fought. And now I think sometimes the best marriages are the ones that have to be fought for. I remember uh, Walter Wongren Jr. is one of my writing heroes. He's this great author. Um, and he said somewhere that the secret of a good marriage, um, some people say it's communication. He said, no, the secret of a good marriage is forgiveness. I, and I, like, I remember my wife and I, we, got, we met and fell in love in, in Bible college. And uh, we had to go through this premarital counseling course with one of the professors. And, and you know, his whole job was to try to find a sticking point, like, Find something for us to fight about. And I remember being like, do your worst, bub. We're in love, you know. And we're, we're like holding hands and stroking each other's hands across the table. And sure enough, he couldn't find anything for us to fight about. We just got along great. And like child-raising doctrinal points, the whole thing. We were like, we're, we're wonderful. We're going to be this perfect marriage. And like year seven is when it hit the fan, you know. And uh, things got really, really tough. That's when I wrote the Silence of God song. I found myself desperately in need of community and t- couldn't believe that God loved me and she couldn't either and like not me but her I know <laughs> uh, but but like this real difficult season so around the, our 15th wedding wedding anniversary which is when I wrote that song um, it was a it, that date was a night where you know there's a lot of pressure sometimes dates are like the time you get away from your kids long enough to have the fight that's been building up for a month you know and so we, we sat down, we had this delightful evening um, where we were able to relive all the ways that the Lord had carried us through, uh, some really dark things, and, and uh, you know, 15 years, now it's 21, but at then, that time, 51, 15 years is long enough to have survived a few things, and, uh, and then three days later, we got in a fight, and so <laughs> the song was about the fight that happened right after our wonderful 15th anniversary date. And uh, yeah, I know. I don't know. I just I feel feel like what I want people to know in the song is is especially young people who are just getting married is, don't be so shocked when you find out that you're broken, mm-hmm. or that your spouse is broken. Don't like don't this this is to be expected that marriage is just two uh, imperfect people trying to figure out life together, which is deeply complicated. And um and so, but that's also the garden where, it's like marriage is is in a garden where God, the God has created where mercy can grow. It's like this is a place where we, we learn what it means to lay down our lives for another person a little bit at a time every single day. Yeah, you know, when I think about the highlights reel of my marriage, about what has made our marriage strong, and I, I look back on that, what we look back on going through miscarriages together, 
being in an adoption process that felt like it was falling apart at the time. Somebody we love dying. One of a, I mean, it, it, this is not what you expect at, at the very beginning. And one of the things I always do in premarital counseling, and I always have the couples just like you and your wife, who's, oh, everything. I remember one of them, you know, I won't give his name because he's actually in this room. He and his, uh, he and his uh, to-be wife were in the room, and I said, what is the biggest weakness that, that your future spouse has? And she said, well, it's that he's so loving and so kind and so competent that he just gives himself so fully to other people. I said, so what you're saying is he's just too awesome, right? You know, let's, uh, and so what I normally do is to say, I, the homework I give them is to write down, if I were going to have an affair, here's how I would probably do it, here's how I would probably hide it, and here are the sorts of things that you probably would see happening in my life. And wow. the reason I do that is that just made me start sweating. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I do that is for the very reason that you mentioned is because a lot of times people when they're going into it. <laughs> a lot of times when people are going into it, they just can't imagine that they are going to come to points of, of temptation and of, of, you know, that. And it's helpful to know that from the very beginning. One last question. Everybody in this room, to different degrees have to work out of a sense of creativity. So some people are writing songs, some people are planning out a business uh, uh, vision for their businesses, some people are writing sermons, and some people are writing books, and there's just a whole variety of things. How, how do you, I mean, I know your schedule, we have similar kind of lives. Uh, how do you, with everything going on, do you keep in touch with kind of the well of creativity? Are there, are there things you've learned uh, about that? Uh, wow. I'm not very good at it, to be honest. I, I feel like deadlines and like a sense of sheer panic is what drives a lot of the stuff that I do. Like, uh, oh, I'm a yes man, so I tend to overcommit, and I say, I end up doing way too many things. I have way too many plates spinning right now, and, um, and I'm kind of doing everything sort of okay. None of, none of these things that I'm doing are really being done well, I don't think. And so I'm learning that lesson now um, as a 41-year-old um, that I need to learn to say no to stuff. Um, but I think there... Okay, so I'm going to get really nerdy on you guys, and I'll just I'll try to be quick. Feel free to clear your throat. There's a, there's a great essay by J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy that wrote The Lord of the Rings, and it's called On Fairy Stories, and he wrote it delivered it like in the 30s, I think. And it's fantastic. It's like, it's, he's, if people tend to think of C.S. Lewis as the real theologian and Tolkien was not so much, but they were both very theological and their reasons for why they wrote the books they wrote. Um, but Tolkien's whole theology of storytelling is fascinating. And uh, one of the things, he t- coins a couple of words in there. One of them is uh, sub-creator. He, he believed that one of the ways that you and I were made in God's image is that we were made not just to want to make things, but to delight in making things. Like anybody who's ever written a song or painted a picture, you know what it's like not just to enjoy the process, but then to, to stand back and, and look at it and kind of marvel that, like, I did this. I did this. I wrote this song. And so, uh, like, that's deeply ingrained in who we are as image bearers is this delight in making things. And so, you know, the picture he paints is that God, the creator with a capital C, made a bunch of sub-creators and said, now go out into the world and do likewise. 
go shed light, make things, build my kingdom, you know, paint pictures, make signposts to the coming kingdom, you know. And so, uh, so I think try to try to remind myself that it's not just artists, not just songwriters. Um, the Rabbit Room, which is this community thing that I'm a part of, we try to push back against that idea of creatives. You guys hear this language like, oh, it's a conference for creatives, or I'm a creative. I think it's bogus. I think that the creatives, like, like making a noun out of that adjective, puts up a wall between artistic people and everybody else. It makes a class of people who are, well, we're creative people, but you're just an accountant. And I want to say no. The accountant is made in God's image just like you are, and he is made to make things. Like in some way, he will find deep satisfaction in creating beautiful things in the world and speaking beautiful things in the world. My wife, for example, uh, she, would, she would tell you that she is not an artist, not a creative person. She, she, I don't know how we ended up finding each other, but she would have no idea who I was if we weren't married. Like she, she listens to the music she hears in Zumba, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> And, and so, like, she just does not, she's not, doesn't think of herself as, like, a folky singer-songwriter chick, you know, or a girl. And, but then if you were to walk into our house, it always smells good. Every time I come home after a weekend, the couch is in a different place. She has this image-bearing, sub-creative impulse to try to bring order and beauty into the world all the time. And so uh, I think that's the thing, is just recognize that, like, no matter who you are or what you're called to do, any creative act is, uh, can be a picture of the coming kingdom, right? And so the other side of that is that if you experience resistance, then it's real. That, like, there's this great book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, who's not a Christian, but he, he writes about the creative process, and he names something called The Resistance with a capital R, and he goes, I don't, get, I don't know why, but it feels like any time I feel called to make something or to build something really beautiful, I, I suddenly am uh, beset with something. It's as if there's a force of darkness in the world that wants me to not make the thing that I'm supposed to make. And I go, yes, that's true. There is a force of darkness in the world that wants to blow out that candle and stop you from making. So the point is, expect resistance. Like, don't be surprised if you encounter uh, some kind of real resistance when you're writing your sermon or uh, building some kind of fellowship in your neighborhood or whatever it may be. It's like, well, there are principalities and powers at work there, you know. So, so everything that you do, everything from moving the couch in your living room or lighting a candle to reading a story to your kids, anytime you engage in the act of sub-creation, uh, then you are at war in a sense. There's this, I'll close with this before you clear your throat. At the, uh, at the rabbit room, we do a conference every year um, called Hutch Moot. Don't ask. Uh, but Hutch Mood is this, basically a, f a celebration, a three-day celebration of good books and good music and good movies, kind of in the way that the kingdom uh, is reflected in those things. And somebody stood up the last day and said, I, she reminded us of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the beaver and the fox and the other guys, they've gotten news that Aslan is on the move. You guys remember this moment? And the snow is beginning to melt, and they have a feast. And the white witch sees them feasting and says, what are you doing? And they were like, sorry, didn't you hear? Aslan is on the move, and she turns them all to stone. And this person at the Rabbit Room Conference reminded us that feasting is an act of war, that, that celebrating the kingdom now is like you're drawing a line in the sand and saying, no, this is, this is God's world, and we're going to live in it as his people. Amen. Amen. Really, really grateful for you, Andrew Peterson, and uh, thankful to God for you. So thanks for doing this with us.
This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.